Philippians chapter 2, let's spend some time in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us life, for giving us this physical life where we are blessed to live in a land that is free to worship you. But Lord, thank you so much more for granting spiritual life to all who would believe. We thank you that it's Jesus who paid the price so that we could be made right. For if, if it were anyone else trying to pay it, it would be insufficient and it would fail. Lord, thank you that in your infinite wisdom, in your eternal plan, you chose to send your only Son, God the Son, Jesus, to come to earth to humble himself, to become fully man while still being fully God, to bear our sin. Father, that is a gift beyond comprehension that Jesus would sacrifice himself in such a way that he would not only leave the throne of glory for a time to to live on earth just like we do, but that he would actually separate himself from the Father in those hours on the cross, becoming detestable in the Father's eyes because of our sin. Thank you, Father, that not only did Jesus die for our sin, but he rose from the dead. And because he is alive today, seated at the right hand of God the Father, we know that though our bodies will die, those who have put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ will not be put to shame, but our bodies will be resurrected once again. Father, we thank you for the gift of life and the gift of eternal life. We ask, Father, that you would help us to use this physical life for your glory. It's very easy for us to get lost in the busyness of life, to pour ourselves into our work or into our children or into uh, our community. And it's very easy for us to forget that you are the one who gave us all those good gifts. You're the one who gave us uh, the capacity to work. You've given us the, the satisfaction that comes from a job well done. That's a gift from you. And yet oftentimes we pursue the gift without pursuing the giver of the gift. You're the one who's given us all the relationships that we have. And we pursue those relationships, but sometimes we forget to pursue the giver of those relationships. Father, help us to focus our physical life on the eternal. Help us to focus our day-in, day-out schedule around you, that we would spend time daily with you, and in doing so, that we would grow to be more like our Savior, so that when we do gather together as your people to worship you, that that, that, that worship throughout the week is just magnified and intensified. So, Father, as we continue to worship you this morning through the proclamation of your word, I pray that you would have free reign in our hearts, 
that you would help us to hear the word of God and that you would help us to understand it and see how in our lives we need to live it out. And Father, we'll thank you and praise you for how you will work in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We are back in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Our series is entitled, The Mind of Christ. God's intention is that we would think and act like Jesus. I think it was very appropriate that we just sang, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, Not that we are to have some sort of existential view of God, that's not what that song means at all, but that we would see everything the way God sees everything, that we would have that type of vision. Having the mind of Christ means that we think and act like Jesus, that we would be godly, holy, that we would put others ahead of our own self, putting their even their needs above our own needs, sacrificing for others. Our theme verse has been Philippians 2, 5 through 7. As we progress, we're going to add verse 8 to it. But if you put that up for us, let's read it together. If you've got it memorized, go ahead and close your eyes. Philippians 5, 2 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I'm going to admit that was a little rougher than it was the last time, but we did take a month or so off from from saying that verse together. I encourage you to keep working on this little passage. So far in the book of Philippians, Paul has expressed his love for the Philippian believers. He misses them, and rightly so. He had been their pastor, and he had since moved on. They have a a partnership in the gospel that had begun years earlier, and and that partnership was still continuing. And you recall uh, from Philippians chapter 1, that word partnership is actually the Greek word koinonia. We talked about that at length because koinonia is our English word fellowship. And because in our modern use of the word fellowship, that meaning has kind of gotten watered down. One of the goals of this book study is to revive the biblical understanding of fellowship. That fellowship is a union of personal relationship and interpersonal activity. It's not just that we have fellowship because we're friends with each other. It's because we're pursuing the same godly goals and same godly activities. Paul then goes on to mention his current imprisonment, how the gospel impact has not been stopped by his imprisonment, but rather has grown, which is not really what you would think would happen. Uh, But he uh, declared that indeed the gospel was growing, not only because of his ministry with those in prison, but uh, the ministry of those outside of prison being emboldened because Paul is in chains. In chapter 2, we looked at the emptying and exaltation of Jesus. He emptied himself by leaving the glories of heaven, by leaving the Father's side to come to earth as a little baby of all things. Helpless. Well, I mean, he's still God. But little babies need lots of help, don't they? Jesus humbled himself to that point. 
even subjecting himself to the humiliation of death and not just any death. The sin atoning sacrifice on the cross. That shameful, shameful crucifixion that was on our behalf. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but this past week was the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. Now, if I were to hand out blank sheets of paper without Googling it, could you tell me what Yom Kippur is? I bet some of you could. Yom Kippur is the the Day of Atonement. It was the highest of holy days for the Jewish people. It was that one day in the year that God commanded his people to fast, to eat no food for the 24-hour time, and dedicate that time to confessing sin. And the high priest would perform the ritual sacrifices for the sins of himself as well as the sins of the people to cover sins that maybe people have forgotten over the past year. But it was that, that, that high holy day where the sins of the past year were atoned and actually assigned to a, a goat. It's where we get the term scapegoat. That goat would have the, the sins of the nation Israel applied to him and then sent off into the wilderness It would have a crimson ribbon on it, and should that goat be seen again, that crimson ribbon would miraculously turn white as a show that God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins were forgiven. So symbolically, the people of the sin, the the people of sin, the sins of the people were removed on the Day of Atonement. This annual ritual always pointed to the need for a permanent sacrifice something that didn't have to be repeated every year because what would happen after the day of atonement when you sinned well it wasn't covered by the previous sacrifice was it there had to be a future sacrifice for it there had to be one greater sacrifice than the ones that the jewish people were at god's command observing And that sacrifice, of course, is Jesus. He was that one perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of eternal value. It's the cross that was the greatest outcome of Jesus' emptying as he emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2. And and, and the, the outcome of that emptying we see in verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that brings us up to speed to where we are today. I invite you to follow along as I read today's text, Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Would you pray with me? Father, these verses are heavy and profound in the believer's life. For how could we possibly 
fully work out this salvation that you have provided. So, Father, we thank you that the verse doesn't stop there. We ask that as we dig into this, these verses that you would help us to examine ourselves, that you would help us to recognize the ways that we need to continue working out our salvation and ways that we need to trust you while working out our salvation. So, Father, I ask that you would quiet our hearts, open our minds to hear from your word, use the Spirit to uh, enable me to speak well, enable us to hear well, and to apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Our big idea this morning is God wants us to put effort into our Christian life. He wants us to put effort into our role of living for God. And so first thing we see in verse 12 is the role of obedience. Paul is telling, remember the context, he's, he's writing to a specific church, the, the believers in Philippi, and saying, when I was with you, you obeyed. Obeyed what? Well, obeyed the truth of Scripture. Obeyed the commands of Scripture. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then he basically says, keep on obeying. We often think of obedience in a sort of negative light. Because in order to be told that we must obey, it must mean that we're not obeying already. That there's a deficiency. And the vast majority of the times, that's true, isn't it? But it's not always true. And it certainly wasn't true in Jesus' case. Jesus obeyed the Father. But it was not because there was something lacking in him that, uh, that made it to where he had to obey. He wanted to do the Father's will. Jesus obeyed the Father Though all three persons of the Godhead are equally God, Jesus is God, God the Father is God, the Spirit is God, though they are all equally God, there is still a hierarchy. God the Father has his plan. Jesus obeys that plan. The Spirit is sent forth from the Father and from the Son to help execute that plan. There is this hierarchy. Jesus obeyed the Father. He always obeyed the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus is speaking. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If Jesus, in his earthly walk, needed to obey the Father's will, how much more so do you and I need to obey the Father's will? He obeyed, yet his obedience again was not like ours. He had no inclination to disobey. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted, 
tested. He was tempted in the ways that you and I are tempted to sin, and yet he did not sin. But we are not like Jesus in our nature, are we? Our nature is self-centered. Our nature oftentimes pursues evil. We need to obey God because our natural bent is to disobey God. In his latter years, Moses was speaking to the children of Israel. Uh, he was He knew that he was going to be dying soon and that Joshua was going to take over as uh, as the leader of Israel. And here's what uh, Moses told the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 31, 27. For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. Isn't that a great thing to say to people? I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you are rebelling against the Lord now while I am still alive... How much more will you rebel after I am dead? And following that verse, Moses writes a song and in it declares just how bad the children of Israel are going to be after he dies. And he's not wrong. Human nature has not changed since Old Testament times and Paul knows it. He tells the Philippians that There was a degree, even a strong degree of obedience when I was with you. But how much of that obedience was going on because I was with you? Basically, he understands what we understand in today's vernacular, that when the cat's away, the mice will play. He knows that in his absence, the Philippians are going to be less likely to obey. And they need to pursue godly obedience. Really, the Christian life is a life filled with pursuing godliness, failing, confessing, and turning in obedience back to godliness, and maybe failing in a different way this time, hopefully to a lesser degree, but confessing sin and pursuing godliness. There's this this cycle because we are weak, because our sin nature still exists. We are called to obey by living godly lives. That's the role of obedience in our lives. The second thing we see in verse 12 is the effort of obedience. You've obeyed. You obeyed when I was with you. Please keep on obeying as I'm gone. And the verse ends, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Years ago, I would approach this verse with a bit of fear and trembling myself. Why? Because we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Is that not true? Okay, one person believes that. Okay, that's good. No. We are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, Paul lays out how we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Incapable of doing anything godly. In verse 4 he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace. 
you have been saved. And then a few verses later, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Grace, 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 grace. The overwhelming theme of the New Testament is that we are saved by grace. It's God's gift. We don't earn it. And yet this verse says, work out your salvation. Years ago, I would approach this verse with fear and trembling, but I don't any longer. Why? Because I have a better understanding of Scripture than I did years ago, which is, I mean, that's the normal course of things, isn't it? I understand the tension found in Scripture. I understand the relationship of seemingly contradictory passages like Ephesians 2 that I just talked about that's all about grace and how it relates to James chapter 2 where he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. That's, by the way, if you want to look that up, that's James 2.14. Can a, a faith that does not produce works, is that a saving faith? And James is pretty clear, it's not. If you don't like that, don't yell at me about it. That's what the Bible says, and it's clear. So yes, there is the need for works, but we are saved by grace. Paul, in his letter to Galatians, also one of the earlier written books of the New Testament, James was the first book of the New Testament. Galatians is like the third or fourth that was written. And, and, and he's looking at another aspect of what's going on in the church. James was written because, uh, well, because the Holy Spirit led him to, to write it, but it was written because he sees the church as knowing what grace is. Grace, grace, God's grace. I don't think they had that song back then. I know they didn't. Uh, but they understood grace. They didn't understand how grace was to be put into action. And so James makes it very clear. Fast forward uh, just a few years to when the book of Galatians was written. And, and Paul is yelling at the church for adding works of the law to their plan of salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Paul says this, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? By the way, they know what the right answer is supposed to be. They didn't receive salvation by doing the works of the law. They received salvation through what they heard. He continues, are you so foolish? Again, I mean, Moses was, did not mince his words with the children of Israel, what, what I read from Deuteronomy. Paul's not mincing his words in Galatians 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? So in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is re-emphasizing the need for people to understand their salvation is by faith alone, not by works of the law. But then in Hebrews 12, 14, the writer says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
strive, put effort and energy into being holy. Because if you're not holy, you can't see the Lord. Now, does God make us holy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or do we pursue holiness? Or yes, right? It's both. God, through the, through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood, when we come to him in faith, he declares us righteous. He covers us in his blood metaphorically so that when he looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness. He doesn't see our sins. But we still have to pursue living a holy life. And there are plenty of other examples in Scripture of this, uh, this tension, this, um, this stress. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, as grounded and founded in the Scriptures alone. Those are the five solas, the Latin word alone, five solas of the Reformation that we commemorate on October 31st with Luther's nailing his 95 theses on the chapel church door. It is by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God as found in the scripture that is the foundation of the Reformation and is the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are people who tend to swing to extremes. I don't mean us specifically. People in general tend to swing to extremes. Some cling to grace so tightly that we fall back into sin because we fail to obey the disciplines of the Christian life. And, and when we cling to grace so tightly, we need to be reminded that, yes, we are saved by grace, but that grace is designed to produce good works in us, and we have to do those good works. And others cling to works, finding their purpose and even identity in living a righteous life. They need to be reminded their status of righteousness in God's eyes is only because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Their good works do not make them look better in God's view. The same kind of tension is found in all of life. There are those who uh, pour themselves into their career and don't know how to take a break, and, and that works to their detriment. And there are others who pour themselves into rest and relaxation and need to kind of be kicked along to get to work. Paul has laid out in Philippians chapter 2 the glorious truth of salvation in Christ alone. And he reminds the Philippians and us to put effort into living that Christian life. And these are not contradictory ideas. They're not. The believer is saved by faith in Christ Jesus. I read for you Philippians 2, 8 and 9. You're saved by grace through faith. It's not ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What's verse 10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared ahead of time for us to do. 2 Corinthians 5.17 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creature. We are a new person in Christ Jesus. And so we need to live like it. The Christian life is not a passive activity. There are lots of things that we do that are passive. Uh, Listening to music, watching TV, uh, watching your kids' ball game. You might be passive, you might be really active, you might be too active, I don't know. Um, Jesus did not save us to sit on the sidelines and watch others do his work. He saved us to be active. We work in a harmonious manner with our status of salvation. Yet the question still remains, why does it say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, anyone who genuinely knows God knows why Paul put that in there. To come face to face with God is a terrifying experience. Ask Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. He enters the throne room of God, and here's the prophet of God who's living for God, who wants to do what's right, who's frustrated that, uh, that the children of Israel just aren't following what he's saying. But when he sees the throne room of God, what's he say? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. To know God is to understand this fear and trembling. Just read throughout the Old Testament. How many times does God wipe out entire nations because of their ungodliness? Never mind the book of Genesis where he wipes out the world for their ungodliness, except for Noah and his family. Or, or even his own people, the nation of Israel. God didn't wipe them completely out, but he sure wanted to on multiple occasions. In fact, uh, he told Moses, you know what? I'm just going to restart with you. I'm going to kill everybody else, and you can be the founder of this nation. He basically did wipe them out in the, in the wilderness wanderings, didn't he? Anyone over the age of 20, when they entered into the wilderness, did not exit the wilderness into the promised land. It's true, some of them uh, just by nature of their age entering the promised land, wouldn't have made it 40 years anyway. That's not the point. God promised that no one over the age of 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, were going to make it to the promised land. That's exactly what happened. To know God means to know that God will most certainly discipline his own children when they disobey. Which takes us back to Hebrews. Paul, through the writer of the Hebrews, said that uh, God disciplines his own as a loving father corrects his children. Anyone who has ever tried to live a godly life knows how hard it is. And even when it doesn't feel like it's terribly hard to live a godly life, what's really, really easy is to stop living a godly life. This past week, I told one of my children to do something. Uh, I actually don't remember what I told him to do. Uh, but the response, the immediate response, well, I can't do that. Well, I'm not going to ask a child of mine to do something they cannot do. That's, 
that's just terribly mean. So if you don't know how to do it, you can ask for help. Or if it becomes too hard, you can ask for help, and I'll help you. But I'm not going to tell you to do something that you cannot do. And, and God, like a loving father, does that to us. He doesn't tell us to live a holy life and then say, good luck with that. No, verse 13, we have the help for obedience. We've seen the role of obedience, the effort, and now the help. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That will, that desire. He works in us to help us to desire to do God's good works. Man, desire, that's a huge part of doing anything, isn't it? If you just don't want to do a task, two things might happen. You might just do it really fast to get it over with, but not really care what the quality's like. Or you'll put it off until the absolute last moment, or maybe someone else will come in and do it for you. Right? When we don't want to do something, man, that's rough. So God works in us to desire, to will, to do his good pleasure to do what he has called us to do. So he works on our desire, and he just helps us to actually produce the good works in us. That little word for at the beginning of verse 13 is key. You can work out the Christian life for God is working, or because God is working in you so that you can be an effective believer. God did not save you and then leave you to your own devices. He's given you his word. He's given us through his word every bit of instruction that we need in order to live a godly life, to understand who God is and, and his character and what he expects, and then who we are and how we can live out this life. He's given us the spirit who lives in believers, giving us understanding when we read the word of God. He doesn't give us understanding of every little detail but he gives us understanding of what we need to know at that time. As we read, study, as we meditate on the word of God, as we research, as we dig into it, the Holy Spirit guides us and helps us to understand what we really need to know, and then he empowers us to do it. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, he's given us the church, where we can thrive as God's people, being disciples who help other disciples grow. One commentator summed it up this way. Human energy could never accomplish the work of God, yet God did not accomplish his purposes without it. Let me read that again. Human energy could never accomplish the work of God, Yet God did not accomplish his purposes without it. You catch what he's saying? God is all-powerful and certainly can do whatever he wants to, to whatever extent he wants to do it. He could make you functionally holy right now. And it would be no effort on his part. But he's chosen not to. He has designed our life so that we would put effort into our personal sanctification, our personal holiness. 
The same is true in salvation, how God draws people to be saved. He can bring anyone he wants at any time to the point of understanding the gospel and responding in faith and being saved. He can do that at any point. But his design is to use you and me to share the gospel of Christ with people. It might be in a one-on-one conversation or in a small group. It might be in a larger group like this. But God designed that the gospel goes forth through his people sharing the word of God. He uses ordinary people like you and me to do the work of evangelism. And he acts in conjunction with us to bring people to himself. It's never us alone. And yet it's still through our effort that he accomplishes his work. It's this type of synergy that is God's design for our personal walk with Christ, our personal holiness, our works, how we live every day, how, whatever metaphor you want to use to understand what we're talking about. It's how we live is our effort and God's guidance, God's power, God's direction. He has set apart all believers for himself through the blood of Christ. He declares us righteous, not because of the works we do, but because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Yet his command is for us to live in a way that reflects the holiness of Jesus that is already applied to our lives. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. This passage doesn't tell you that it's easy. If it were easy, the whole reminder of obey as you've always obeyed and work out your your own salvation or live out your own salvation might be an easier way to understand that verse. Uh, There would not have to be any fear and trembling. But living a holy life consistently, that takes ongoing work. Work isn't bad. It just means that there's effort. We do work all the time. Whether it's, uh, whether it's just getting ready for the day, some mornings that's genuinely work, or whatever it is. We put effort into things all the time. That's not bad. It just takes some determination. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work with all your might, knowing God works alongside you, in you, and through you, so that you can be pleasing to him. Our big idea this morning, God wants us to put effort into living for him. And you can add on to that because this is just as important. And God will help us do so. Will you take a sober look at your life? A genuinely honest look at your life, analyzing not just what you do, but the motivations you have behind what you do? Will you ask yourself, am I living for God? Am I putting to death sin in my life? Am I pursuing with all my strength, knowing God, knowing his word, knowing how to live? Am I purposely helping others to grow in Christ, helping other disciples to be better disciples? Am I purposefully seeking out the lost? God wants you to live like Jesus, and he will help you. Let's do that work together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to take to heart 
the challenges of these verses. That you would help us to not ignore sin that resides in us. That you would help us to not be falsely convinced that we are living a holy life when we are not. Help us instead, rather, to constantly be turning to you, constantly be confessing sin to you, constantly be pursuing ways that we can live for you, and thus bring glory to your name. Thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So we pray, Father, that you would help us to live it out this week in Jesus' name.